Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hi, welcome to episode six of the Liberty Cafe. These are crazy times we live in with the COVID-19 crisis and oil prices plummeting and uh, everything just changing all around us. So I'm really excited today to have somebody who speaks very clearly on on a lot of the issues that face us in the world today. Uh, Jackie Deason is with us today. She is the host of the Jackie Daily Show on The Blaze, and really excited to have you here with me today, Jackie. Bill, it is really good to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me to come on. Um, just an honor to be here because normally it's me inviting you on the show. So I'm delighted to be invited onto yours. Well, it's always been a pleasure being part of your show. And uh, speaking of which, would you go ahead and just give give the listeners a, a rundown on what the Jackie Daly Show is, what you do there? Yeah, so the show is... Um, really an educational show. It's not a yelling and screaming political comedy routine like a lot of shows are that I enjoy, Uh, but it's really designed to educate just the average American on the importance of energy to our lives. So whether it's oil and gas or I even go out to nuclear and coal sometimes, um, I'm talking about the red meat topics like fracking, endangered species, pipelines, climate change, um, things that people really have strong opinions about, but maybe don't have a lot of information about, or at least not quality information that you and I uh, would think is comprehensive and, and complete. And so I take those types of topics and try to make them digestible. And uh, so it's not technical and financial and things that would make people's eyes glaze over. It's, it's not like an industry show. It's really for just the everyday person. And, and what's interesting, I told you it was for Americans. Um, that was my target. And what's interesting about being on an outlet like The Blaze is we are simultaneously podcast uh, across many platforms. So the listenership is actually worldwide. And that surprised me right out of the gate. So if you look around the world, especially in the English-speaking world, a lot of these places don't have um, uh, media that is in line with uh, the free market, freedom, you know, um, what some might call conservative or libertarian views. So you just don't see that around the world. And now they have the option because they can access American media. So I hear from people around the world who listen to the show, which I think is kind of cool because we're kind of like the beacon, Ronald Reagan said, you know, up on the hill. And we really are just because of technology. Yeah, we, we really are. So so why did you pick energy? What What got you into doing energy and focusing on that so much? Well, because I think that uh, you have to go back to 9-11. So I was in law school. And that's kind of the defining moment for my generation. For other people in the past, it was Pearl Harbor, or maybe even Kennedy being shot or something like that. That was the moment that really solidified for people my age, um, that the moment that they really felt like they were an American, and that there were clear lines. Um, that were being drawn. 
And so I always felt a um, duty to apply myself or pour myself into defending the country. And when I went to Capitol Hill, I worked for the chairman of the subcommittee on the Constitution as counsel. And that's part of Judiciary Committee. And over my seven years there, we did a lot of um, counterterrorism investigations and, and legislation. And I became interested in how to beat them. And it became clear to me that they are funded by oil and gas money um, in the Middle East and North Africa. And the only way to beat them, I thought, and still think, is to choke off the money. So we spent a lot of time thinking about that. And uh, there were a lot of ideas, you know, do we, do we end the era of oil by transitioning to wind and solar? Do we go to nuclear again? Um, do we put the transportation sector on natural gas and at least get it off of gasoline and oil or electric cars? All of these ways to try to uh, marginalize their power and money. And I'll tell you what I came to after all of that is that the fracking revolution was actually the way out. Because if the United States could double and then maybe triple, potentially, its oil and, and um, production in particular, but also natural gas, um, that would bring the prices down so low that these states that fund terrorism could actually not meet their budgets and not have any disposable income um, to pay for what is really a, an enormously expensive enterprise of deploying terrorists around the world and, and madrasas that are militant. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a 200 country operation. It's, it's a worldwide operation. And now it's kind of going broke. So American fracking did that, yeah. actually. And so I became so excited about it. And it's, it's like I wanted everyone to understand this. You know, to me, this was my contribution to the country, to national security. And uh, I love what I do. And I, I don't know if I'm accomplishing the goal and getting this across, but I, I talk about it as often as I can. Well, you're right. We seem to win the battle when it comes to fracking and, and, and just the explosive growth of production here in the United States, both oil and natural gas. And, it, and it's made a tremendous difference. How are, you know, we, we seem to at least be winning this external battle with some of the foreign suppliers by taking out their influence. But at the same time, it's almost like we're committing suicide internally because uh, a lot of the money that is coming out of the oil and gas industries these days is being turned around and put in by some of those very oil and gas companies into things like renewable energy, which are just undermining the reliability of our system today. I know you and I have talked a lot about that. What, what are your thoughts on renewable energy? Well, um, you know, coming from D.C. first, when I first got into this up there, everyone thought it was the answer to everything. And I had so many friends who were jumping into alternatives because that's where all the federal money was. Um, and so once you really delve into it, you realize that these alternatives, um, first of all, are, I guess, unnecessary. I mean, all the reasons why. We uh, hear that we just need them so badly. Um, gosh, I don't even have enough time in this interview to begin to unpack that. But, but they're, they're not as green as they're built to be. Let's put it that way. 
Um, the second thing is they just can't get the job done right now. And I mean, I know you disagree with me on this. I mean, I'm, I will say, I don't know when in the future wind or solar could ever be energy dense enough to power a country um, like ours. I don't, it's not there now. We're, we're, we're nowhere close. I mean, we're not even, we're not even in the same universe. So Texas Public Policy Foundation did a study showing that if we converted the state of Texas to um, wind and solar, we would need about 6 million acres, like, like bigger than the size of Harris County, which contains Houston, to do that with the transmission lines and all the panels and all the turbines. That's not going to happen. Um, and and it, anyway, it can't replace hydrocarbons because we have petrochemicals, of course, uh, which is pharmaceuticals and electronics and plastics and vinyls. You cannot convert electrons from wind and solar into hydrocarbon chemicals to make those things. So it doesn't solve that either. Um, right. So, so you know, I, I won't underestimate what human beings are able to do in the future, but simply because I could never have foreseen, uh, you know, a computer chip and what it can do. I would, I would never, you know, I, I think I'm a reasonably intelligent person. And I think most very, very, very smart people could never have foreseen that. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I will only say um, that those energy sources are just not close to what's required to feed the world, power the world's hospitals, schools, planes. I mean, it, it's just not possible right now. Yeah, I, I don't know what the future is going to hold either. I, I, I did see a book. Uh, I read Robert Bryce's uh, book, okay. rec his new book recently, and uh -huh. he looked at California, among other places, and said that if California was just going to go to 80% renewable, they would have to have about, well, I can't remember the number, but it was millions of the latest of the um, Tesla batteries in order to store enough electricity to make it reliable and keep it going. Right? So yeah. you, you need millions of acres and then you need millions of batteries to make it work. And I, I don't see it perhaps as you, as you alluded to ever coming to pass, but certainly not anytime in the near future. But that, that kind of leads to the thought. So why, why is everybody such in a, in a big hurry? And it, and it seems to be that at least from the left side, it, it's this push towards, you know, climate change. We, we have to save the planet uh, from, from, climate, from climate change. Of course, a few years back, it was global cooling, but now it's global warming. H how do you see that driving uh, the, the discussion around energy today? Well, you know, when I first started my show, I was totally agnostic about global warming or climate change. Um, I didn't talk about it at all because I felt like I didn't have the credentials because I'm a lawyer um, and I didn't know who to trust. I mean, there were such polar opposites out there. And then what happened over time is that there were so many scandals busted open. Climate gate one, climate gate two, Michael Mann's litigation, um, you know, and, and so much that happened, including in a court of law to show that so much of what we were being told wasn't true in terms of the alarmism. And it was getting no play anywhere in the press. And I felt a responsibility to say, hey, why is no one talking about this? 
I don't see anyone disputing that these things, these, these scandals are, are not true. No one, but no one's reporting it. And so um, over time, I just, you know, what happens on, on issues like these is you decide who you trust. It's just that simple. People trust certain messengers and um, those that I trust say, yes, of course, climate change is happening. It's always happened. Um, yes, we're getting warmer. Yes, mankind contributes um, in some measure. I mean, even just by exhaling, we contribute. But the the question is, is this a concern? Is this a bad thing? Are we in danger? Um, it depends on what you're concerned about, I suppose. I mean, for me, I'm concerned about human beings, first and foremost. Some people are concerned about the earth above human beings, which I think is a problem. Right. If you're concerned about the earth, then you shouldn't be concerned. If, if that's your first priority, you shouldn't be concerned at all. The, this earth was around uh, and managing itself long before we had any ability to really meaningfully impact the environment as humankind. Um, you know, I don't think that, that exactly. Moses was doing much uh, to manage the, the climate. Um, I don't think, you know, I mean, I just, th this earth has an amazing, beautiful, wondrous ability to regulate itself. And it has lived through far, 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 far worse. So if, if the earth is your concern, don't worry about it. It will, we will adapt if the earth will adapt. Humankind, <clears throat> to me, is is really the most important uh, consideration, and so um, there's a lot to find comfort in. I watched a presentation, uh, which I wish I had a copy of now, but it was in 2018. Obama's former, I think it was the Deputy Secretary of Energy, his name is Steve Koonin, K-O-O-N-I-N. He took the top 27 um, climate models that are cited in research. And he uh, made an average of them. And the average overstated the increase in temperature by about 45%. Wow. So see, the press is taking the worst, the most extreme Amazing. models. And he's saying, well, if you just combine them all, you're still way above the actuals. And so things are nowhere near as bad as the models that have been cited. Why is that not news everywhere? And Steve Koonin, um, by the way, is a very highly accomplished guy. And I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure he's at NYU. Um, I want to say he's a physicist. And so he had these amazing credentials. And he's, he's a Democrat. Um, and he's just a guy who is telling the truth. And so I see things like that. And how can I not begin to become skeptical, not of climate change? I mean, I know that climate's changing. Everyone knows that. I haven't met one person that claims otherwise, but skeptical of the so-called experts whose solution always involves taking money out of our pockets and giving it to people who want to do, you know, launch unproven technologies that won't solve the problem. So that's kind of where I stand. Well, it seems like experts today, in a lot of areas anyway, have, have shifted from science into modeling. Right? They're, yeah. they're no longer looking at the facts and coming up with, with uh, theses and, 
and theorems and trying to prove them. They're just putting together a bunch of numbers and assumptions and modeling them out to the future and pretending like that's science. And and, and we, we see that all over the place. So that it's it's kind of hard to pick and choose these days or really understand who your who your experts should be because they all hold themselves out this way. And, and some some get put up there because of their credentials and some just get pushed out there for some reason. Uh, speaking of which, uh, did you see that uh, Greta Thunberg's going to be on a CNN town hall <laughs> panel or on Corona facts and fears? Yes, I did. So now not only is she an expert we look to on climate change, but also, you know, pandemic containment. So yeah, I saw that. I'm, I'm probably not going to be tuning in for that. I probably have things to do. Um, but yeah, she's uh, really, really got some mileage out of her crying at the UN. She, she really has. Well, let's talk about the COVID-19 uh, situation that we're facing today a little bit. I, I saw you wrote an article just, I think it was last week on Real Clear Politics, talking about the, the cost of lives from the shutdown itself. So many people are talking about the, the numbers of lives saved by the shutdown but, but you looked at it from another perspective, what, what the, the lives and the human cost are uh, from the shutdown, the government action keeping us in our homes. Would you take us through what you talked about in the article? Yeah, so um, what kind of got me started thinking about the cost in human life of being shut down is that when Dallas shut down, which is my hometown now, <clears throat> um, in March, I received, uh, and I'll be very clinical about this, but I received a notice from my mammogram provider saying, you're not going to be able to get a mammogram until further notice. And then I got a, a notice from my OBGYN saying, you're not going to be able to get annual exams until further notice. And this was all about Governor Abbott's order, um, which shut everything down. If it, if it was medical and it was not emergent, then uh, it was elective, which is what screening is then it had to be postponed so that if the hospitals were overwhelmed with COVID cases, there would be assets and resources to use. So, you know, do I have cancer? I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, I doubt it, but who knows? And I'm not going to know until those elective services reopen. So I began thinking about how many cancers do we screen for in this country? And how many cases do we diagnose every year of those cancers? So I just I just checked it out. Uh, the answer is five cancers, right? There's breast cancer, um, colon cancer, um, cervical cancer, melanoma, and prostate cancer. And I found out that every year there's somewhere between half a million and a million new cases of those cancers. Well, how is anyone going to be diagnosed to be treated for those if we're shut down as we were? Um, and, oh, I left out what actually provoked me first. I, I saw an interview with um, Zeke Emanuel. Zeke is uh, one of the architects of Obamacare. He is Rahm Emanuel's brother. He is a healthcare advisor to Joe Biden. And he gave this very, very somber video appearance where he described it. We need to stay shut down for 12 to 18 months. And he said we have... Quote, no choice. He says, you're not going to go to religious services, see your friends and family, because if you do, 
we're going to lose hundreds of thousands of Americans to COVID-19. And he was so just emotional about it. And I was outraged. And because um, I just received these notices, I can't get my screenings right. And um, so then I began doing research on, okay, how many people will commit suicide if we enter into a Great Depression, which is what would undoubtedly happen? Uh, just going to a year. And um, the answer is, if you look around the world at research, we see that depression always spikes in times of economic downturn. There's, I mean, I couldn't find an exception to the rule. And then, interestingly, um, depression and suicide always plunge in times of war, at least in the UK and the US. So it's very interesting. You know, you look at World War One. Suicide's way down. Depression, way down. It's over. The Great Depression happens. Suicides spike. World War II happens. Suicide's way down. So there's something about it. It's not just that there's a hard time or there's ruin or there's danger or fear or uncertainty. It's about people feeling like they are needed and they have a purpose and they're providing for their family or protecting their family. It's very interesting how the psychology works. So for every 10% uh, jump in unemployment, there are 30,000 suicides historically. So, okay, I mean, the, the Fed was saying we were going to have about a 30% jump in suicides by the end of June, or excuse me, jump in unemployment by the end of June. If that was correct, we were looking at about 90,000 suicides. Okay, and so you add up the suicides, the missed cancer diagnoses, and then I was looking around, um, this was Dallas, after one week of lockdown when I was writing that op-ed, we already had a spike in domestic violence. Um, the, the shelters were diverting women to hotels because they had no room. The Cook Children's Hospital in Fort Worth has an abuse kind of unit. And the lady who runs that unit said, listen, we've already seen a spike in scary cases after one week, including death. And she said, we knew this would happen. We didn't know it would happen so soon after only one week of lockdown. And I haven't checked back with those people, but I, you know that's happening all over the country. And this is self-inflicted. Are, are we, I, I'm asking the question in the op-ed. Are people talking about the economy versus human life and not understanding that there's human life on both sides to be lost if we don't reopen? And so that's what the op-ed was trying to do. Yeah, it's kind of a false dichotomy, if you will, that the, these mm -hmm. these folks are offering us, right? That that you know, either we lock up people in their homes or people die. But but there's really an, actually a, a third way we might be able to deal with this, and that would be individual people, uh, businesses, communities could respond by doing what they think is best without the government forcing them to stay in their homes. Uh, why why do you think that option hasn't gained much traction? Well, I think I think the course that we set very early on just kind of set the framework. And in the beginning, the problem was that I mean I mean the very beginning, like January, February. The problem was that we had no information except what was coming from China or the WHO, and nobody believed them. And so we really had no idea what we were dealing with. And that fear not only made the government way overcompensate, it made the people compliant. 
You know, you make bad decisions when you're <laughs> when you're in a fear posture. Um, and so knowledge dispels fear. Right. And as time went on, we got more and more data. And I think a lot of people just kind of chilled out like, OK, I, we understand what this is. It appears to behave just like so many other upper respiratory conditions like colds and flus and pneumonia. Um, it will target the most vulnerable, like everything else. And so I think once we figured that out and figured out that kids are very poor vectors for it um, and just things like this, it, it really went a long way to changing things. But by then, we've already got the framework in place that was very like overreactive. Um, and nobody was talking about the downside. I'll give you a great example uh, for your about your question, like, why don't we let people choose? Knowing now what we know, uh, I had Alex Epstein on my show last week, and he gave a great example. He said, imagine you're an 85-year-old grandmother. Okay, I have one of those. And so you know that you only have so much time left on this earth. It might be a year, maybe two, maybe five maybe six months. And so what would you prefer? Would you prefer to spend the last year of your life with your friends and your family and your grandchildren? Or would you prefer that the governor lock you in your home, make sure you can't see anyone so that you can live a year longer by yourself? You know? And so I thought that was a super powerful point because I'm, I've always been so close to my grandparents. They're like my parents. I grew up right down the street from both sets of them. And um, I just cannot imagine being made to stay away from them at the end of their life. I just, I cannot, I, I would flat refuse. There would be no one who could stop me from seeing my family. And, um, you know, I was there uh, for the last three weeks of my grandparents' lives, one set of them. They died 48 hours apart uh, in the same hospice. And I can't even imagine if this if that had happened during this pandemic, they couldn't keep me away from them. You know, I'd say, what are you going to do? Arrest me? Come and do it. Come and take it. Because exactly. I just would not comply. You know, what's more important? So those are really great examples. And uh, I, I have to tell you, Bill, I'm seeing my friends on Facebook. I do have a handful of them who... Uh, haven't unfriended me yet, who <laughs> don't think like me, who are on the other side. Um, <laughs> a handful uh, from law school, you know. And um, man, some of them, one of them uh, is an evolutionary biologist before school. And, you know, he was very, 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 very pro lockdown. Um, one of them is like one of the, I think he's one of the top guys for the ACLU in a certain state. He, I think he was the same. I mean, and, and then I, I've seen an amazing turnabout in them. And they're super smart people. Uh, one of them graduated. The ACLU guy graduated, I think, at the top of our class. And, and yesterday, you know, he was posting. He said, I, he said, I'm becoming very concerned over the past couple of months of the framing of the economy versus human life. And he was making the very, very solid point. Listen. You know, we're all in this together. Look at this. There's a report from the LA Times that 130 million people could be facing starvation by the end of the year because of lockdown. Let's think about this. And it's been very touching to see people, you know, some of the most, frankly, in his case, some of the most liberal people I know rethinking this and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I, I think that's great. 
So I hope that the politics are being put aside and that we can put human beings first. Well, you, you've kind of moved. I mean, there's a practical aspect to this, but you're, you've also moved here past past that to to the the principled aspect of that. And and you said on your your show the other day with with Alex Epstein that the government's role is not to save your life; it's to preserve your freedom. I mean, th- that's pretty radical yeah. a radical statement these days. Do you do you have hope that more people will come to believe that in the future? Well. I, I think that we're being given a very um, uh, interesting opportunity to learn that lesson right now. I really wonder <clears throat> how our thinking will be changed after all of this. Um, we're not going to see really the negative repercussions of what's been done here for probably another year and a half. There's kind of a, a long lag time between you know the time you implement an economic policy and then you see the fallout or the benefit. And so it's gonna take a while. It will be after the election to be clear. Um, but I think that the culture has changed a lot lately. And I just hope um, that once people look around and say, hey, wait a minute, we're all still alive, <laughs> you know, <laughs> except except for, you know, 0.7% of us. Um, and I'm not making light of that, but, but I'm, I am saying we need to put it in perspective. The truth is 3 million Americans die every year, every year. And you know what? I'm not convinced that this year is going to be much different than the year before. I'm really, really, really not. Um, and so... What I'm saying is I actually think we've done an amazing job of at least, you know, prolonging life or or preserving life or protecting life if it's about uh, containing the virus. I think we've done more than a terrific job. I think, you know, we've gone way above and beyond what what we could have done. Government cannot save these people's lives. Um, There's no government action that can save our lives, frankly. It's up to us. It's up to us. And so... I'm actually kind of feeling a little bit optimistic that we've learned something here, all of us. Well, I am too. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show today, Jackie, and just to encourage everybody to uh, go to The Blaze and, and look up the Jackie Daily Show. Thanks for being on, Jackie.